Good morning. Would you, uh, as a favor to those people that are sitting around you, check and make sure that your phone won't ring out loud during this time? You don't want to embarrass yourself. Do what? So it takes a lot of people sitting back there to uh, make this happen. You notice there's a crew of five people that make it happen. For those of you who are pajama people or watching from elsewhere, um, other than Houston in your pajamas. So we get um, analytics that say there are people watching from all over the country. So welcome. Just make sure that your phone is off. Um, as usual, let us begin in some silence. So take a deep breath and do whatever you need to do to be in the space. Just be present, be open. So our intention during this time is to come to know better who we are, to know the truth, to live fully and bravely in this world as it is, with the faith that all creation will benefit because of our commitment to love, truth, and freedom. And no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but um, I'm concerned about several of the many worlds that I inhabit. I'm particularly concerned about the war that's being waged in Ukraine and um, Hearing those people who are supposed to be experts talk about the possible next steps um, is concerning. Very concerning. I'm concerned about um, and by and publicly embarrassed by the dysfunction of many of our elected officials. I guess you have to read it uh, to make sense. So hearing numerous people around me express similar concerns, I decided to embrace this new theme, um, embracing what scares us as things fall apart. Now, a theme is like a window through which we look. The window doesn't change what we look at. But it does give us a shift in perspective, a chance maybe to see things a bit differently. 
I had a meeting this week with someone who is in hospice care. It seems like this is the phase of my life that I've entered into, that a lot of friends and people that I know are nearing the end of life. And um, I visit, he's in home hospice care, and we get together about once a month. And uh, as we were parting this week, he jokingly said, well, I'll see you in a month. Provided we're not in nuclear warfare, we have no idea what will happen next month. And then he said, of course, we won't have any idea what will happen next month if Putin hadn't started this war. So the one thing that we can be certain of is uncertainty. Now, I know it is a standard tactic of some preacher teachers to start out by presenting a very bleak and scary description of the mess we're in, and then right at the last moment, bring some heroic-sounding ending that causes everyone to leave feeling good and on a happy note. Well, I truly hope that what you find and get here today will be useful, um, but there is nothing about the window that changes the fact that Putin is still a madman who has a lot of destructive power at his control. We still have a bunch of eighth graders running the government. But perhaps I can point out a few things to be seen out of this particular window that you will find nourishing. One of my favorite Zen teaching stories is about a monk who was out walking in the forest one day when he began to be chased by a tiger. He started running for his life, and he ran, and he ran, and he ran, and soon he came to the edge of a cliff, and being unable to stop, he went over the edge. This is an old teaching story. A lot of graphics about the story exist in the literature. Fortunately, on his way down, he caught the root of a tree that was sticking out the side of the cliff. He looked down, and on the ground below him, was another tiger. He looked up, and the tiger that was chasing him was still there. He looked aside, and he saw a strawberry on a bush growing from the edge of the cliff beside him, and he let go with one arm and reached and got the strawberry and ate it. And he just loved it. Now, that story is told in Buddhism as an example of an ability, no matter what, to enjoy the present moment. It is, after all, all we have. So let's start soothing ourselves in the face of what scares us by living up a trinity of a life well lived. Now, I am not talking about the Christian mystery that's referred to in the Christian creeds as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I'm talking about something else entirely. Just to use the word trinity stirs up a lot of negative stuff for a lot of people. And to illustrate this, I want to play you a video. Hope the sound works. We have a sound technician running breakneck speed. Do I need to wait for you to start this? Okay, here we go. I went to a school uh, in a little village called Ratfarnham in County Dublin. My first day at school, this convent, long winding driveway up to it. One of those gothic doors. 
great studs in it. I rang the bell and opened. And there's one of these nuns, flapping. <laughs> terrifying, terrifying. Three and a half, four years of age. Terrifying. What do you want, little boy? My mummy. My mummy and daddy said, I've got to come here. Yes? Well, if you come here, you've got to be a good little boy. Will you be a good little boy? And I could see past her. There's a fellow nailed to a cross. <laughs> I thought you're bloody right, I'll be a good little boy. question they ask, what do you know about God? I don't know anything about God. Who? God! Who's God? God? You do not know who God is? Sister? Sister, we have an atheist here. <laughs> Let me tell you, little boy. God is, God was, and God always will be. <laughs> what? What he is? What is that? He is the Father, he is the Son, he is the Holy Ghost. He is three and one. Do you understand? I'm four years of age. Why wouldn't I? The greatest theological question in the world. Three people and one. And I'm naturally. Yeah. Where is he? He's here. Well, I can't see him. That doesn't mean because you can't see him that he's not here. It doesn't. He's in the cupboard. He's not in the cupboard. God doesn't go into cupboards. He's under the stairs. He's not under the stairs. He's here with us now. He's upstairs. He's downstairs. He's outside. He's inside. He's everywhere. I think he's a big fan. Why can't I see him? I'm asked, do you love him? Do you love him? I don't know. I've never seen him. God loves you. And he wants your love. But if you do not give him your love, he will cast you into everlasting flame. What? He will cast you into everlasting flame. Have you ever burnt yourself? Yeah, I burnt myself on, on the candle. What was it like? Oh, very sore. Can you imagine that pain all over your body? That's what will happen to you if you do not love God. What do you think of that? I love him. I, I love him. <laughs> then I was, I asked, who was the fellow on the cross? Jesus. Who's Jesus? He's the son of God. I've told you. Father, the son, and Holy Ghost. He's the son of God. <laughs> he was born on Christmas day and died on Easter. I didn't think he didn't hang around, did he? <laughs> what happened to him? He died because of you. <laughs> Christ died on the cross because of your sins. When, when was this? It was 2,000 years ago. They can't blame me. I'm only four for Christ's Did he have a daddy? Of course he had a daddy. I've told you he had a daddy. God was his daddy. 
We have a mummy. Yes, he had a mummy. Mary was his mummy. So God was married to Mary. No, God was not married to Mary. Mary was married to Joseph. Between my parents and the church, the brains are scrambled. <clears throat> I learned to bless myself. First time I learned to bless myself was sadly when my uncle died. And he was being buried in a kind of remote part of the Dublin mountains. And it was a real funereal day. The wind was whipping down, the rain. And I'm only this big, I'm kind of wandering around between these legs and this black shroud and umbrellas and dripping rain, this bloody hole in the ground. And oh, Christ, I didn't know what it was all about. And I'm watching the coffin being lowered into the ground, and I hear the priest say, What I think. In the name of the Father and of the Son, and into the hole he goes. <laughs> I blessed myself for years. Into <laughs> the Father, Son, and into the Holy Ghost. What did you say? Into the Father, Son, and into the into the Holy Ghost. He goes into the Holy Ghost. He didn't go into the hole. I was there. I saw him. He went into the hole. Um, that that um, make sure this is on. That comedian's name is Dave Allen. And you can go on YouTube and find other things by him. He's deceased now, but he's got some really, really funny stuff. I think this is one of the funniest bits that, that he has. So um, I, in introducing a new trinity today, which is kind of borderline heretical, I guess, it is not in the name of the Father, Son, and into the hole he goes. Um, but the trinity that will guide us safely and securely from here to there, whenever there might occur, is the trinity of love, truth, and freedom. So over the weeks to come, uh, we're going to elaborate on these. And these are really, I think, all we need if we are to continue to grow in our understanding of them and, and, and allow, if we will continue to grow in our understanding of them and then allow these things to grow us. Love, truth, and freedom. Um, there is a prayer, an ancient one, the author of whom I have not been able to find out, but I keep it in a place where I can see it that says, um, while I'm working on these talks, from the cowardice that shrinks from new truth, from the laziness that is content with half-truths, from the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth, O oh God of truth, deliver us. So last week we began to talk about words and the fact, the fact, underline, that words create worlds. So um, we're going to stay with this topic as well as this trinity for a little while. Um, and I'm calling today's time learning to speak spiritual. Now, Western culture, that means the culture that you and I have been raised in, is the culture of the Judeo-Christian tradition 
and you cannot escape it having had a shaping influence on your life. You cannot escape that. Everybody in this room, no matter how literate or illiterate you might be, knows something about Jesus because of Christmas and Easter. It's in the culture. We know about that. Um, and this Judeo-Christian mythology has permeated all of our institutions, religious, educational, political, everything, economic. You notice that President Biden ended his State of the Union address as all presidents from the beginning of all such addresses have ended with the words, God bless America and God bless our troops. Right? That's the formula. Now, that God, you have to wonder where that God is constituted, this civil religion God, not the God of Jesus. And you might also know that just two weeks ago, President Putin gave a Trump-like rally speech in which he quoted not only the Bible, but words attributed to Jesus as reason for invading Ukraine. Now, I'm sure that everybody in this room is familiar with the creation story that's in the book of Genesis. I'm going to read you part of it, not the whole thing because it's too long. I'm going to read you part of it as translated by Eugene Peterson. First this, God created the heavens and the earth. All you see, all you don't see. Earth was a soup of nothingness, a bottomless emptiness, an inky blackness. God's spirit brooded like a bird above the watery abyss. God spoke light, and light appeared. I get that. God spoke light, and, God, and light appeared. God saw that the light was good and separated light from dark. God named the light day. He named the dark night. It was evening. It was morning. Day one. God spoke sky. In the middle of the waters, separate water from water. So God made sky. He separated the water under the sky from the water above the sky, and there it was. He named the sky heavens. It was evening, it was morning, day two. And it goes on like this. through the, and There are two creation stories in the book of Genesis. This is the first one. Then God says, and I don't have a slide about this, let's make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Now you got to wonder to whom God was speaking in the story. Now, Christians later would say, uh, fundamentalist Christians would say that God was speaking among God's self and that this was the first reference to the Trinity. But that's hard to understand because the Trinity did not come into formation as a doctrine until sometime around the 5th century B.C. Genesis was composed, at least this part of it, somewhere between three and 500 years before the Common Era. But the point of the story is that God's high point of creation was us, little duplicates of God, who can, as God did, it's always a male God, by the way, use words to create worlds. 
and we do. No other creature can use words like we do. Now, it has been shown uh, that research has been done that um, 97% of, the, no, it's been shown by research that people who use words to create puns are 97% smarter than the average. <laughs> I just made that up. When Toni Morrison received the uh, Nobel Prize in Literature in 1993, she said in her acceptance speech, word work is sublime because it's generative. It makes meaning that secures our difference, our human difference, the way in which we are like no other life. So I'm going to say that we do use words to create worlds, but not in the way the story has it. By how and when we use words, words can mean different things. I was standing with someone recently who was in deep grief. And this person said to me, I have a hole in my heart. Now, you know immediately they did not mean that literally. They meant something far more than that. And yet there are people who to this moment... Uh, take the words that were written almost a thousand years ago, I think we've lost this, um, as something that came out of a physics lab. From everything the cosmologists, the biologists, the archaeologists are now telling us, we know that there was no idyllic couple named Adam and Eve who were created according to whatever version you choose, in some magical way with the woman being created from a rib taken from the man while he was asleep. You have no idea how difficult it was for me to resist the temptation to tell some of the many jokes that come out of this story. Most of them are very sexist, by the way. Very sexist. But from the beginning of human language, people in places and positions of authority have made up stories to explain things, to create social order, to help people feel secure and find meaning, and for a wide variety of other reasons. Did a Buddhist monk running from a tiger really grab hold of a root and enjoy a strawberry before plunging to death? No, it's a story. When Aesop spun his yarns where animals could talk, he was trying to enlighten the human predicament, not recite history. When Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan and the prodigal son or any of the other wonderful puzzling parables he told, he was not reporting on something that factually happened. And nobody who stood listening to Jesus that day punched a neighbor and said, you know, he's just making this stuff up. They were stories that conveyed powerful truths to people. Now, <clears throat> if you want someone to blame for this teaching methodology, you can blame the kids. Or those who lived in pre-Copernican, pre-critical worldview. Because any parent can tell you that... Um, got to get rid of that. Kids ask a lot of questions. 
Why is the sky blue? Why does the moon have a piece missing from it? When I was a child, my father told me that a man put up a ladder against the moon and removed a piece of it. And he did that on a continuing basis until the moon got smaller and you just had a little fingernail of a moon. And then the guy would put the ladder up and start putting pieces back in. I believed that for several years. Brian Swim contends that we humans created music and dance because we discovered we had ears and bodies and wanted new and different experiences with them. We discovered as language developed that we could spin tales and give meaning and entertain. And in a very real sense, as the evolutionary process continued, people began taking God and creating God in their image. Now, other, other cultures have creation stories, but they don't attribute them to a divine being. This is the unique contribution of the Judeo-Christian tradition. These stories started being created about <clears throat> 2,000 years before Jesus and 1,500 years before Jesus. Moses writes or tells his stories, and he included one about a man named Abraham who was about 500 years before Moses, who came to believe in one God rather than many. And the story, everybody knows the story of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac. Right? So right now we are in the liturgical season in Judaism, as well as in Christianity, where the saga of the release from bondage of these Israelites is being rehearsed and told, and it will culminate in the Seder meal in Judaism, in Maundy Thursday for Christians, and then the big to-do on Easter Sunday. You know the story of Moses, right? Anybody who does not know the story of Moses, see me after class. And um, you know the story of Moses parting the Red Sea, allowing the children of Israel to go over freedom. And then when the Egyptian army was in the middle of that, they were drowned. Right? Now again, people in the pre-Copernican, pre-critical period of both history and human development would, of course, take these stories literally, but they couldn't take them literally in the way that we mean literal because the definition of literal that postmodern Western world has wasn't invented when they told these stories. Does that make sense? So a boy comes home from Sunday school and his father asked him what he learned. He said, well, we learned about the time when Moses led the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. I think I remember that story, says the dad, just to refresh my memory. Well, Moses told Pharaoh to let the people go, but Pharaoh would not do it, so God inflicts a lot of bad stuff on the Egyptians, and finally Pharaoh changes his mind and tells them they can go. But after they left, Pharaoh changes his mind again and sends his army after them, and as soon as Moses gets to the Red Sea, he sees he's in trouble. So he pulls out his iPhone and calls his corps of engineers who rush in with big trucks and equipment and build a pontoon bridge so the children of Israel can get safely across. And after they're safe on the other side, the Egyptians start to use the same bridge, but Moses calls the Air Force and his bombers blow up the bridge so the Egyptian armies drown. By this time, his father's mouth has dropped open his eyes are bigger than they've ever been. He said, they taught you that in Sunday school? And he said, no. 
But if I told you what my teacher said, you'd never believe it. <laughs> so as time passes, the people figured out that in order to live together they, safely, they needed rules and regulations. And these rules and regulations needed to carry some weight. So what greater weight could you give something to say, God told me to tell you? Some of you have memories of fundamentalist preachers who do that, right? God sent me here to tell you. So that's how the stories were created, these laws that were given by God. The, the, the words they came to share helped them identify what they could believe was real, that is, the truth about things. It made them feel connected. It gave them identity as they discovered what foods kept them healthy and what hygiene practices kept illnesses away. Those things got worked into the rules. Um, I think the development of language is fascinating. It's not something that is the real topic of this talk that I'm going to go into, but just try to keep in mind that just as music developed over a long period of time and just as architecture developed over a long period of time and just as medical understanding and practices developed over a long period of time, so did language. The creation of words and the function of language developed over a long period of time. I took a week-long seminar years ago from a cultural anthropologist who said that at first our ways of communicating with each other were hand signs and grunts and that we sat in the evening together around a fire for security warmth so we could have each other's back, right? And if one of us ate something that was not good, we would make a retching sound and a facial expression that would go with it, like that. And this cultural anthropology said that eventually got hardwired into the human animal as something to communicate to those around us, don't eat this. Some form of writing... <clears throat> Markings etched in clay to record business transactions began around 4,000 B.C. Around 3,500 or 3,000 B.C., the Egyptians invented a picture language called hieroglyphics. And then at about the same time in cultures all over the world, in China, uh, in Indus, the area that we now makes up uh, India, Pakistan, and so forth. The Mayans in Central America, it happened in, in Asia with Confucius and in the Middle East, so forth. These people developed their own alphabets. And almost all language scholars admit that though they are not sure where and when languages really first came into being, they do agree that words, that worlds create words, and that worlds create, words create worlds. Now, here is what I think is relevant for us. When we don't understand what's happening, 
When we want others to get the significance of what we think something means or what our words mean, we create stories. We create myths to illustrate our understanding. Now, I think, go back to my trinity, I think churches beginning decades ago should have been teaching and should be teaching now that these stories are myths. For one thing, that would be the loving thing to do. For another, myths aren't facts. So that would be the honest thing to do. And thirdly, this is a step toward freedom. And these are the trinity that we must embrace in order to deal sanely with the things that scare us. Now, a second reason to be truthful about the creation and function of ancient myths is that some of them have done humongous damage in the human community. Some of them are harmless. A boy goes to his sister and says, um, she's much older, says, where did I come from? And she said, well, the stork brought you. So he goes to his mother and asks the same question, where, where did you come from? And the mother says, well, the stork brought me. Well, a few days later, his grandmother's visiting, and he asks her the same question, Grandma, where did you come from? And she says, well, the stork brought me. So he goes to his room where he's working on a science paper for class, and he writes, there has not been a natural birth in our family in four generations. That's a harmless enough story, but what about the Adam and Eve myth? In that story, Eve is an afterthought, and she is the seductress in the couple's first sin. That myth has done damage to women for 3,000 years. As has part of the story where humans are to dominate nature, and that we're special and separate. course you are special and separate I'm talking about all those other people out there so so a century a century a century ago the scientific community began to accept evolution as a factual theory there has not been one scientific discovery since then in any way to the slightest degree to discredit evolution as a way to understand everything that exists, including us. And yet, many highly educated people refuse to be disloyal, as they see it, to the teachings of the church by accepting this as the truth. This creates cognitive dissonance, not freedom. Um, the Noah's Ark, the flood story, is a myth. You know that, right? It's a terrible story to teach children. And yet, there is a creationist museum in Kentucky that has a replica of the Ark and displays it as scientific truth. Now, you just think for a moment. Scientists estimate that since its beginning, Earth has produced 
maybe 30 billion species of creatures. Now, if Noah boarded a male and female of only 1% of all the creatures, that would be around 5,000 flesh and blood beings. Now, you know that the story says the flood lasted for 40 days. Noah stayed on the ark for a year. So that would be 5,000 flesh and blood beings, elephants, pandas, eagles, rabbits, tarantulas, and they would have been eating, urinating, defecating, and copulating for almost a year inside Noah's big boat. Now the flood story has a, it, I mean the flood story shows God as destroying everybody. Right? And it's got even a worse aspect to it than that. You may or may not remember this part, but after they are back on land, two years have passed now, two years, Noah gets drunk. You know this part of the story? And he passes out, and he's lying naked in his tent. And uh, already by this time, some laws have come into being that it's not good to see a human body naked. So his sons get a big beach towel or something, and they put it behind themselves. They start walking backwards to Noah so they can drape it over his body and not see the, their naked father. When Noah wakes up, he sees this. And for some unbeknown reason, he curses Ham's son, saying that Ham's son is going to be a slave to Ham for the rest of his life, right? Now, though it is never mentioned in the story, race is never mentioned in the story, many churches during the racial conflict leading up to the Civil War in this country use that story to justify enslaving black people. The myth has done damage. Now, I could go on and on with this, but the primary point I'm trying to make is that different words create different worlds and therefore, we can use words to create different worlds. And we can use this power in the face of things that scare us. I'll say it again. This is the point of this talk. It's a critical tool that we can use when we are face-to-face -face with what scares us. Now, I did not just say that words create reality. However, if you read Judy Canota's um, Field of Compassion, you will begin to think that there is something to thoughts and words creating reality when she talks about morphogenic fields, which we will get into at some other time. A few years ago, there was a horrible, horrible um, hurricane tornado thing that hit, uh, swept through Florida. And uh, on the news, reporters were there on the scene, sticking microphones in people's faces, saying, you know, you just lost your family. How does that make you feel? You know, that, that kind of thing. One person was standing in front of their demolished home and lamenting, we're ruined. We've lost everything. We'll never recover from this. Not three minutes later, someone else is on camera in front of their demolished home saying, Thank God we're safe. Our family is together. 
Material possessions are nothing. We can recoup that, but we can't recoup a lost human life. Same storm, same loss, different realities created by different words. I have mentioned to you before that one of my most important teachers and mentors was this guy, Carlisle Marnie. Um, my encounter with Marnie happened when I was in my early to mid-30s. I was just a kid, but I was so much smarter then. I knew so much more then than I know now. Marnie was a really interesting guy. He used to be pastor of the First Baptist Church in Austin, Texas. He left there to go to Charlotte, North Carolina to be minister there. And uh, he was a liberal Baptist. If you can imagine, I can't. He's a true oxymoron. So when I first came to Houston, I'd known this guy through family connections for years and had heard about what a big hero he was. Actually, he's just about 21 years older than me, but to me, he was much, much older. And uh, he left the church in Charlotte and uh, started a ministry for troubled clergy at Lake Junaluska in Lake Junaluska, North Carolina, which is a Methodist encampment, by the way. And uh, the Methodists were always big fans of Marnie's. Uh, the Baptists never were um, because he was so out there. And for reasons I do not understand, Marnie invited me to teach on his faculty twice while he was there. Uh, that The second time is where I met Jim Fowler, whom I would later work with at Harvard on his uh, faith development theory that he came up with. If you don't know Jim Fowler's work, it's worth knowing about. Marnie was one of the, the smartest, wisest men I've ever known. And I, as I said, I, I idolized him. He's a big, deep, booming voice, so authoritative. And after a day of teaching together, he loved to get in his pickup truck and drive to his house, which is on a mountain he owned, part of a mountain in the Smokies, called, he called it Wolfpen Mountain. And uh, separate from the house, he had a study, which I lusted after for years. The study used to be an apple orchard cooling house for apples that were harvested in the nearby orchards. And it was a big circular building, and Marnie had picture windows put in it, had bookshelves all around the walls lined with his library, uh, had a circular fireplace in the middle of the place. Oh, it was just wonderful. I remember the first time that he drove me up there in his pickup truck over a rutted, muddy, unpaved road. And I said, I bet it's when it snows here, which it does a lot in the Smokies, you can't get out of here. And he said, thank God. <laughs> and no one can get in. I love that place and that man. I saw him at a separate time. I've gone to the Carolinas to do some uh, preaching, teaching on an entirely another venture. I went to see Marty, and uh, about two weeks after I got back, he just dropped dead of a heart attack, just bang. But what, it, what Marty liked to do at the end of a day, he liked to take one or more of his teaching faculty um, to that study, for a ritual that he called bourbon and branch water. Those were some of the finest communion services I ever attended, I'll tell you. 
As I said, Marnie had this deep, booming voice, and on the particular occasion I have in mind, we were settled in with drinks in hand, and he said, you know one of the things that marked Jesus as a spiritual genius? And by now we had learned that such questions were purely rhetorical. They were designed to let us see what was going on in this theologically oriented genius's mind. And Marty said, Jesus was a spiritual genius because of his ability to distinguish adjectives from nouns. Jesus understood and lived the understanding that words like Samaritan, leper, prostitute, poor, which functioned like nouns in his time, were really just adjectives. The nouns that counted were words like human, person, child of God. And Marty taught and wanted us to teach that when we use adjectives to represent people, we do damage. When we use an adjective like male, female, liberal, conservative, legal, gay, straight, black, to the level of nouns, we rob people of their larger humanity. What we have in common are nouns. Adjectives are what divide us. In his autobiography, Malcolm X describes the time when a car pulled up beside him at a red light, and a white man in the car rolled down the passenger seat window and stuck his hand out the window and called mockingly out, grinning at Malcolm, Malcolm X, do you mind shaking hands with a white man? And as the light turned green, Malcolm X replied, I don't mind shaking hands with human beings. Are you one? In my neighborhood, I am always seeing vehicles for painters or plumbers or electricians that prominently place Christian symbols on their vehicles, the cross, the fish, whatever. And I've wondered, is there a Christian way to paint a house? Is there a Christian way to unstop a toilet? So don't let adjectives define you or anyone else. That's one of the ways to deal with the scary times. So... Holly and I were talking this week, and uh, I left that conversation convinced not only with how brilliant you are, uh, but also that when I'm dead and gone, people will remember two things about my teaching. One, that I harp on having a spiritual practice, and two, that I harp on using your turn signals. I'd like to be remembered by more, but... So I want to say some things today before I'm done about having a daily spiritual practice. Because this is a way that you can be in the face of scary things and not be scared. A daily spiritual practice is whatever you consciously and deliberately do to evoke and invite a transformation of consciousness. That's it. So maybe you want to write that down. Or take a picture of it, or it'll be on the web in Tuesday, by Tuesday. Now this seems simple, but it's complex. Because some people think that by taking up a spiritual practice, they will be safe and secure from all alarms, as that hymn said. Remember that hymn? 
But it doesn't happen that way because there's nothing for you to attain. Because there's nothing missing. Hmm? There may be some things to be discovered, but you already got it. And as I'm going to try to say next week, it's not about attaining, it's about letting go. But going somewhere else misses the point. Yeah, so so um, I was constantly driving the first person I engaged as a spiritual guide and teacher back in the 60s nuts because I would end so many of our sessions by saying, so tell me what to do. And George would not do it. He just, he would say, I cannot tell you what to do to be. It was so frustrating. But one day he said, okay, I'll tell you some things that people who are busy being do, but there's no guarantee that if you do them, you will be as they are being. That was puzzling. But you get it. You can do the things that people who are busy being do, but there's no guarantee that if you do them, you will be as they are being. But if you're being, you will probably find yourself doing some of the things that people who are busy being do. That's, that's easy to understand. So in these scary times, what are we to do? And um, though I do this with some trepidation, I'm going to give you some things to do. One of them is to learn to speak spiritual like we've been talking about today. Learn that language shapes your reality. Know the power of words. Remember those people from the storm in Florida. It ain't nothing till you say what it is. You have that power. The very first book I was required to read when I came to Houston and got in CPE, the very first book I was required to read was Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. It's consistently among the 100 most influential books ever written in the English language. Read it. Viktor Frankl wrote in that book, everything can be taken from a man, forgive his sexist language, he didn't know better. Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Now just keep in mind, he wrote that from a German Nazi concentration camp. So learn to pause and reflect. Get a spiritual director or counselor. You don't have to pay money for this or even get a flesh and blood living person. Get a good solid book and read it on a regular basis. One of the two books I read every year is Living an Examined Life by Jim Hollis. Get it and read it. Don't read the whole thing all the way through. Read a chapter a day. Make notes on it. 21 chapters, you can read them and then start reading it again. It's a great guide. Get some of Pima Chodron's works, the ones that I cop the uh, title for this new theme, The Places That Scare You and When Things Fall Apart. Just make sure your person that you talk to isn't also in a scary place. All right, but they're pretty grounded. Get your journal out. Writing down your feelings is a good way to explore what you are feeling. And I am not a behavioral psychologist. I took some courses in that. But the genius of behavioral psychology is that if you write something down, 
It changes the way you think, feel, and behave about it. That's the reason that when people are on diet programs, they ask them to write down everything they eat. Or if they're on a smoking cessation program, to write down how many times they smoke a cigarette a day. It gives you the, the experience of control about things. So learn to dispute, disrupt, and displace your thoughts and feelings. You down? Get up and get out of the house. Go for a walk. Turn off the television. And, and perhaps the most important tool you can have is learning to practice gratitude. Try it. Every day for a period of 21 days, in your daily spiritual practice, write down three things that happened the day before that you are grateful for. They don't have to be great big things. I've been through periods of my own life when what I wrote down, I'm grateful I woke up. They don't have to be big things. But I promise you, I guarantee you, that if you do that, when you hit a scary down time and you go back and you read your gratitude journal, it will change your thinking just like that. I promise. Now, as I said, I offer these with trepidation because you're already in the midst of what you're looking for. There's nothing to attain just to realize. Um, as Jim Finley put it once in a talk I heard him give, he said, when you go to the beach and wade out just a smidgen, it's true you're only ankle deep, but it's also true you're in the ocean. What we need for ourselves, what we need from each other, and what the world needs from us is learning how to be non-anxious presences to the places where we go live out our lives. Now, this is a guy that if you're a Christian, you give your allegiance to. His name is Jesus. His most frequently voiced expression was, fear not. Don't be afraid. So our time has come to an end. Where will we go and who will we be? We go out to be God's people in the world. See you here next week. Thank you.